Hello. At the beginning of every series, we wonder whether we will have enough to discuss each week. But we should have more faith in the BBC and other broadcasters to deliver news, controversy and scandal on a regular basis. And this week, we have the perfect guest with whom we can explore the issues of the past few days. How Russell Brand was hiding in plain sight at the BBC and other broadcasters. Then there's the third breach of impartiality by GP News. It took Ofcom six months to pronounce on that, and there are still another six investigations being conducted by the regulator. And, of course, as rumours go round about Newsnight ceasing to have its own reporters, we'll examine how cuts in BBC News have impacted and may well impact on its journalism. The person who, until recently, has been wielding the news axe is Katie Searle, who was in charge of all of the BBC's political output for eight years up until last year, and more recently was director of news programmes and current affairs. During her over 30 years in news, she was the output editor on programmes such as Radio 4's Today and television's 6 and 10 o'clock news. She's now at Foretold Consultancy, giving advice on media and politics. I spoke to her on Tuesday. Katie Searle, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you've just left the BBC after over 30 years. Must be very strange, isn't it? Hi, Roger. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really strange. Um, the BBC is a, a wonderful place to work. It's, um, it's uh, like a kind of warm body to be in sometimes. Not always so warm at other times. But it's certainly a place that once you're in, it feels, I always to say it's a bit like being at a school that you never leave. It's a bit of a Hotel California, really. Um, and so um, having actually found the door to exit, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still getting used to the outside world. But there also comes with that some freedom. I want to start, I want to deal with the question, obviously, about the BBC News' future, because you've just been in a very senior position there. But before that, I want to deal with a couple of contemporary issues which are obviously hogging the headlines. And the first one is the Russell Brand scandal. Uh, how much of a problem do you think there is for the BBC? There are a lot of BBC enemies out there who are trying to weaponize it against the BBC again. He did work as a radio presenter for the BBC between 2006-2008, now, of course, after the infamous episode with Jonathan Ross, his contract was terminated and the controller of Radio 2, Leslie Douglas, left. But do you think there are worrying questions still to be asked about the BBC, about how such a person was working for them in the first place and whether the BBC protected young employees who were there? Well, I think, you know, one of the things about the BBC is that the endless, and I mean endless, things that happen kind of you know, beyond the control of certainly the DG, but a lot of people that work um, with with whoever that is. Now, I think there is a question here, you know, certainly on to do with Russell Brand now, of course, like every other media organisation, people in the BBC will be very, very keen and quick to find out who knew what, and if there's any evidence to suggest that people turned a blind eye. Well, look, it looks like some people did turn a blind eye, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it was a long time ago and, and the, the culture was different there. I think that is worth saying. That's not to excuse his behaviour at all, of course, but I suspect there was some eyes turned. I also think it's worth saying, though, Roger, that there, you know, there is an issue, I think, for media and bosses in media companies, not only the BBC, to think about how their talent is managed. 
and whether there is an abuse of power that undoubtedly went on with Russell Brand still going on, not necessarily, by the way, in a, a way, a, in a sexual way or anything that Russell Brand has done or is accused of doing, um, but in a generalised sense of abusing the power that talent has. And the reason I say that is because I think, you know, as we've seen in this case and we've seen in other cases, talent uh, has a lot of power because for two reasons. One, mostly they're very good at their job and bosses don't want to lose them. So, you know, that is one key point. And secondly, because they're famous and therefore carry some power. And as a result, if bosses are not careful, what happens is that power is used badly or at least inappropriately, even if it's just about bullying. Yeah, but it's in a situation where a lot of young people have never had less power. I mean, what's happened since in my time is essentially, you know, when I was involved in a young person at the BBC, you were on staff, there were reasonably strong unions. If there was really a problem, and of course there was a problem, you had a level of protection. Now you have young people, uh, not particularly in news but elsewhere, who want very short-term contracts. Um, if they work on a programme outside the BBC for an independent company, you know, they may be on very short contracts. They're on their first job as a tra- trainee or a runner. The, what they desperately want is a career. What they desperately want is their contract renewed. The idea that they are in a position to deal with somebody who the executive producers are desperate to keep on side because he or she is the reason they've got the contract to make the programme. There's such an imbalance of power now. That if you are, if I had a young daughter, age twenty-two, working in light entertainment, frankly, I'd be worried. Mm. Well, I, I think I agree with you. You know, I think it's it's, but I don't think it's just about light entertainment, and I don't think it's just about sex. I think it's a broader use of power over people because their careers depend on it. I mean, 30 years ago, when you started, were you ever bullied? Of course, we have to define what bullying is. There's shouting in a newsroom, there's tension before a big interview where the presenter thinks, ah, and he gets worked up or she gets worked up. Setting those understandable tensions aside, were you ever bullied? Of course. I mean, it was, you know, it was a very different time then. So I was 19 when I first joined the BBC, and, and it was, as you just sort of indicated there, you know, look, newsrooms were... I think, in many ways, rightly, fiery places. You know, you could say that it's gone too far the other way, actually. You know, that I think people should be able to argue their points and argue their, uh, their, for their stories. And, you know, news are notoriously difficult. I remember one case of a manager biting the ear of another in a newsroom. You know, I mean, and that was, <laughs> was some time ago. Hold on, that's a reference to Mark Thompson, who we will be talking to in the future. Mark has always said he nuzzled the person involved. <laughs> Is that right? I couldn't remember who it was. Yeah. Yeah, well, I know it was the, the, the big boss. But, I mean, I think there was always that problem. Um, but as I remember it, when I was involved, it tended to be shouting matches and stuff like that. Because, as I said, you were reasonably secure with a, with a, co- with a staff job and a trade union against some some problems, although quite a lot of women would say broadcasting house with small rooms was not a place to get stuck in with certain people. Of course, the other side of that now is that, and you notice the intense pressure Women's Hour has been on, for example, when it's dealing with trans issues and the pressure to say nothing or be afraid to say something about those sort of issues. So we're sort of polarising almost here, aren't we? If the problem, the major problem, if it was the case... 15, 20 years ago was and may still be the case to a degree sexual harassment. The other problem we're facing now is is being no platformed, that you can't, intention doesn't matter anymore. It's words, wrong words, 
associated with wrong people means you can't have a discussion. Do you think that's... Uh, was that a real problem for you in your last years at the BBC? The trans issue, how to deal with it, and also the attitude of some of your younger staff towards it? Well, I mean, I, d- I didn't get involved too much, to be honest, but I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of sensitivity around it. Of course there is. It's not just at the BBC, it's across all media. And I think, um, I mean, you've identified that, you know, the younger staff, of course, were leading that charge. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the BBC appointed a correspondent um, to specifically to report on these issues. And I think part of that was driven by the fact that it, there was such sensitivity. And also, you know, in any kind of subject or area or, or issue-based area, you've got to really understand what you're talking about. And I think that was the driving force behind that appointment. What the argument about is is capturing the language. You know what people do, which is um, they don't worry about intention largely. They they try and capture the language. And if people, particularly and our speaker is a very old person relatively, uh, uses words inappropriately, they don't bother to deal with the argument. They just oh, say, if you use words like that, we shan't discuss things with you. I mean, did you ever feel as a woman talking to young women working for you in news a really bigger gap between you on these issues than you might have expected? I didn't really. I mean, I've always had a, a really kind of open relationship with the staff that I, I've worked with. And of course, look, I repeat the point that I've just made. I think you, you have to be more careful about how you communicate with younger staff than perhaps it would have been 15 years ago. But that's, that's also true of lots of other areas. You know, we've just talked about the kind of atmosphere in the, in the newsroom 20, 30 years ago. I think, you know, society has moved on and you have to be careful about how you deal with things. But, of course, there are huge sensitivities around these areas. And news, of course, is another thing which is changing quite dramatically. Uh, we've just had um, GB News, uh, obviously, has been going for a little while now and strengthening, getting quite decent audiences, not, not near the BBC at the moment or Sky, but, you know, developing well. Of course, we've then just had this Ofcon decision, which... Um, uh, criticised GB News for an interview which was conducted by two Conservative MPs who were their presenters with the Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, although not on the grounds that they did that and it was wrong to do the interview, but the interview was not then balanced. How do you regard this phenomenon of MPs presenting programmes and so on? Andrew Neil, on, uh, in an interview we did with him, uh, said... Um, you know, it well, came out very strongly against it. You know, being an MP doesn't necessarily qualify you for being a good political interviewer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really cautious about this. Uh, you know, I, and I wonder whether we have done enough in the media industry to really think about what's going on here uh, and, and allowed this to go too far. You know, as you know, um, Ofcom has got, you know, a legal obligation to ensure that news is impartial, but somehow GB News, despite its name, um, gets round these, these issues uh, and is not regulated to the extent that I would absolutely urge it to be so. And even with yesterday, you know, you've got to wonder really, um, you know, it's, they've been slapped on the wrist, but what, is the, what's, what are they going to do about uh, going forward with that? How are they going to actually punish it? How is it going to be stopped happening again? And I wonder whether with growth of all of these things, and of course, you know, we're all in favour of competition, absolutely, but have we really thought about how far 
these programmes, these stations are going without proper regulation. And I fear that if we don't do something about it, it will become a bit like America. It will come out of hand. And also, I should say that, you know, certainly my experience at the BBC, and I think it's true of other, other um, organisations like ITV, is that they are frightened of really getting involved in this conversation because, you know, of the, the charge, understandably, against them that the big beasts are trying to stop uh, the smaller ones progressing and that's bad for competition it's bad for politics so you know they are very cautious about what they say about that but as a result uh, no one's really shouting from the rooftops about the danger here well there's a danger i mean look to the states i mean i don't know whether you were shocked as i was when fox news i knew what fox news were up to and what they were doing and they were um, but when we when there was that court case and it was revealed that Fox executives and Fox presenters and Fox editors knew that Donald Trump had lost the election, knew there wasn't widespread rigging of the polls, but also knew that if they said that, the audiences would drop and with it the revenue. So they had a straight choice, the truth or the revenue, and they chose the revenue. Uh, and the, uh, what astonished me was they were so explicit about it. Were you surprised by that? Well, it's just extraordinary, wasn't it? I'm surprised in the sense that Fox News is Fox News, so uh, not that surprised. And I don't think, to be fair, I do. I don't think we're in quite anywhere near that that danger at the moment of making those kind of decisions. But I do think it's something that we really should have much more open debate about in this country about where the where the state of the British media is going. Of course, there's a way out for people. Well, actually, people like Russell Brand can't. They just go on YouTube, where they get millions of viewers, unregulated. Although, of course, we've just heard that YouTube won't allow, for the moment anyway, Russell Brand to monetize his appearances on those programs. But in a way, we have no control anymore. We have a regulated sector, and we have a totally unregulated sector. And of course, the unregulated sector, in part, you know, gets its audience by saying, "Hey, people like you, Katie, so were involved in a big conspiracy, weren't you?" And it's only only on plays like YouTube that the establishment can be exposed. And one of the reasons they're trying to go after Russell Brand is to shut him up because he threatens to expose the establishment, of which maybe I was a member once and you certainly were more recently. I mean, what could, we can't do much about that, can we? Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, it is time for us to step, take a step and have a look about how, how all, of, all of these things are regulated and whether we need to bring in um, a greater regulation and it feels to me really that Ofcom and other bodies are not really keeping up to speed on, on where we've got with this it's almost like people actually haven't really noticed that this is happening and you've seen that play out with the Russell Brand case Can I then go back to the BBC and I'm tempted to, to headline this section cuts although I think as many people point out and if you point out BBC does have lots of money you were involved in the cost-cutting exercise. First of all, I mean, where are we on that? Uh, some people say, well, you know, this is the last round looking for £5 million more cuts, whatever. Just tell us, are we, where are we in the cost-cutting exercise? Is there more to come? <laughs> it's like the Seven Bridge Roger at the BBC. There's, um, there's always more cuts to come. There have been, you know, for 30 years. And look, I, I'm going to say something that's not as interesting as perhaps you'd like me to, really, because I do think, you, you touched on it there, I think the BBC has got a lot of money. And Tim Davey, and I'm a big fan of Tim Davey, I think he's an absolutely excellent DG, he, um, is, was always, always keen to point out 
that the BBC has a lot of money is about where you choose to spend it. So that's the controversy here. Where do you choose to spend it? Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's more to it than that. He has to say that because he's got a Conservative government to deal with. The BBC has lost, as he would say himself, between 30 and 35% of spending power over the last 10 years. It's got a third less to spend. And in the past, it's been able to make cuts really where you didn't notice. And now we're in a situation where they're making cuts where you do notice, and there's a question of who has the right to make these cuts. It's publicly funded. The shareholders don't have a say. Where are we? So for their sake, let's assume the BBC got a load of money, load of money but it doesn't have enough money to do what it did. Hey, where would you say you've particularly noticed those cuts? Oh, well, first of all, you would say in local radio, with the dramatic, where you've got market failure in local journalism, with, with newspapers falling part a real role there for which central to democracy and at the same time bbc making cuts they say they're not making cuts but they are and you know we they are they're reducing the number of local radio programs they have to share things there's about a third for example of religious services being on there so that's an area they've chosen to cut the whole range of other areas they've cut budgets but uh, in terms of numbers of programs they're being reduced the point I would make is that there is the, the, the stage now where there needs to be elements of consultation. But before we get there, back to news, you are making significant cuts now. And I just wanted to get a sense of what the audience can expect in terms of cuts to come. Not specifically what the cuts will be, but the scale and nature. This is an ongoing process, isn't it? There are more cuts to come in news. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, I mean, I, I can tell you what I, I know to date, um, although I'm, you know, I'm not keen to break some of the confidences that I am aware of. But um, you, it's no big secret that the cuts will continue. Um, you know, news is facing continued and large cuts. So where they come from is a real question. Well, what a large. Are we, there's a figure in the press about £5 million worth this year. Roger, I don't have that. I don't have that figure in my head, I'm afraid. Um, but what I can tell you is that there's going to be some, um, you know, big decisions to be made. So you would have seen in the press in the last few days that uh, Newsnight has been uh, mentioned um, about whether it's it's going to face some cuts. Now I don't know whether I've been out in the BBC for six months. I don't know where they are with that decision. I do know that Newsnight is an expensive programme to run. It has its own on-air editors, unlike any other. Uh, program and the audience levels are very very small so you know you've got a you've got an immediate equation there the problem for BBC News is that it has a very high profile brand so what do you do with that brand do you reduce the program to um, uh, a program in all but <laughs> name at Newsnight remains but it is a very different program and I suspect that's what you'll see happening but you know that those are the sorts of decisions that uh, news is going to have to make but I should also say just uh, before you go on further just tell me what, what are the other options without saying what's likely to happen what are the other options do you think that are there that have to be looked at you've already seen some changes to the news channel so They've combined the World News Channel and what used to be called News24, the domestic news channel, and come up with a channel that tries to serve both audiences. In my mind, that doesn't necessarily work. I think, you know, it's a problem if you're watching the UK and you can't really access what you're used to seeing, although I know the idea is that they will stream certain news events. But I think that, you know, what are you going to do about that? Is that a decision that is going to, you know, prove to be successful in the longer term? 
question. Uh, question. You, you've got doubts about it, real doubts. Uh, well, I, I, it doesn't work for me, Roger, as a viewer. I think it's a problem. And I think, you know, they will have to reform what they do there. And I suspect that's already in the plan over the next couple of years, that you'll see the news channel in whatever form it is, evolving into a different state. My worries about the BBC is this, or one of them is this. The BBC is having to plan for a future without the licence fee. It's therefore, understandably, pouring resources into America because it thinks that there's an American market for it there. It's focusing on digital and so on. At the same time as it's doing that, it remains or should remain the public service broadcaster, and therefore it should not be driven by only commercial considerations that will protect its own future. So, for example, when you cut the you know, uh, parliamentary channel, whatever, you can say, well, OK, nobody's watching, but you could take another way of saying, in public service, it's vital that that is available. You're looking at Newsnight and the cuts there, and you say correctly that the audience is falling down significantly, but you could say... Where is the repertorial function? Could Newsnight in future do an investigation into Russell Brand? And if, if these cuts go through, it won't. You'll have a discussion programme. And so what my worry is, and perhaps I'm influenced by the fact I essentially came from current affairs, is that instead of having a group of editors who can make different decisions about what's important and perhaps get ahead of the game and so on, you have a narrower commissioning base where people are processing very well information but the agenda's narrowed and that always in the BBC's mind is what's the commercial potential because we may lose the license fee uh, those are the sort of worries uh, and and you know I look at the Newsnight issue that if you cut Newsnight enough and you cut local radio enough of course audiences will go down sensibly because they've got less original material and programming to look at so which is the chicken which is the egg yeah, I mean, look, this is the kind of existential question, isn't it? You know, how do you keep doing what the BBC does best, what BBC News does best, which is proper, thought-out investigative journalism when audiences are falling? And I think the, the answer really is is make sure that you continue to do that really important journalism, but it may be that it's spread across the cake in a different way. If at Newsnight, for example, is it really the right thing to do to spend £13 million on a programme that's only watched by 300,000, when actually you could do that same investigative journalism but spread it across news in different parts of the day? And remember, Panorama still exists. Yeah, if you could, but would it get done? I mean, my, you know, my, 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 um, and again, I'm from the past, but my impression is that strong-minded editors who were determined to go after a story would go for it and fight for it. If you're part of a larger machine and you're having to work out whether it'll work on various different outlets, would you keep up that sort of investigation? I'm not sure. I think a narrowing of the agenda is inevitable, and I think investigative journalism will suffer if it's not resourced and. Uh, maybe not Newsnight, maybe it doesn't matter. But I was struck that, you know, Channel 4 have done this dispatches programme on Russell Brand. But they even, they had to do it together with The Times and The Sunday Times because the amount of resources required are now almost beyond a broadcaster. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Look, there are, there are still programmes like Panorama, which, you know, is absolutely the core of investigative journalism, of course. But you're right to say that without that resource and also without the, the commitment to that, 
time. So, of course, it's resource, and resources mean time means resource. If you look at how long the Brand investigation took it, they spent two years doing that. Now, I, I wonder whether that's something that the BBC would be able to do to devote that time. Of course, it's got some brilliant um, successes in the past, but it's vital that uh, the, the BBC continues to do that and, and makes those uh, makes that a real focus. There is other, another thing, actually, Roger, I just think I should say in terms of the cuts as well. It's not just to investigative journalism. It's about programmes like the Today programme is, you know, running on, on tiny amounts of staff now. And for me, that is a real concern. You know, very, very small numbers of staff are outputting programmes and the editors that are on that programme are absolutely superb. But the reputation that that programme rightly still continues to hold is under threat if the resources are cut so thin that they aren't able to do their journalism to, to the standards that they should. And you think they have been cut too thin? I think the Today programme is, is cut too thin. I think I would urge um, colleagues to really look at those resources and, and make sure that uh, you know, they are able to carry the job out. You know, I'm talking about a couple of programmes here, you know, today being a really vital one in terms of the reputation of the BBC. Now, finally, I don't want to let you go without uh, talking to you about your career in Westminster because you were there for a very long time and you were there through COVID and uh, maybe I've influenced also by having watched Laura Kunzberg series going up BBC2 at the moment, which is quite fascinating, not least for the, those who appear, brackets, civil servants, and those who don't appear, brackets, those who think they'll be called up for the COVID inquiry. But how they, there are all these conversations going on about people in BBC being leaned upon, and there's a suggestion that... Uh, Certain people on the BBC board ring up and tell you you're not impartial. Um, there has always been trouble with... I remember back to Harold Wilson days, of course, and uh, Bernard Ingham had many arguments with and others. Over your many years when you were involved, has it got worse? Do you think politicians feel they can lean more easily on the BBC now? Um, yeah, I, look, I think the news cycle has changed. You know, during that time, um, and I hope you spotted me in Laura's programme, by the way, Roger. <laughs> um, dur- during that time, it was absolutely crazy. You know, so I joined in 2014, I left in 23. And, and that the news cycle changed in every respect. You know, you went from probably two to three in terms of the news cycle to many, depending on what happened in the day, sometimes many an hour. Uh, And I think that just changes people's behaviour. You know, add in social media, of course, and that was part of it. You know, you're in a different landscape. And so, you know, do you feel leaned on? Definitely by the politicians. But, you know, I've said this before. I think, it, to be honest, it's their job to, to lean on me. You know, so I've spoken about this before. When I was there, I went through eight director of communications at Downing Street in the eight years that I was there. All of them uh, would be on the phone from very, very early to very, very late at night trying to influence what the BBC did. But, I, you know, that was their job. And my job was to resist that or to accept where we made mistakes. Yeah, but did they sometimes ring their friends in the BBC and management and the management got, gave you a call and said, hmm, not sure about impartiality here. I mean, because you know what, the, the, the sort of mood music coming out of, well, Tim Davey, who I respect greatly as well, initially when he took over, was impartial, it was vitally important and the strong impression was, and the suggestion came from other sources, the BBC wasn't, wasn't impartial. There you are, working the BBC for nearly 30 years, involved in Westminster, busting a gut to be impartial all the time, and then you're told the BBC's got a problem with impartiality brackets what are you going to do about it i mean did it have a problem 
It didn't, you know, and I say that with hands on hell. And, and also, I'm really tough cookie, right? And, and I don't get pushed about. And you know enough journalists, Roger, to know that journalists pride themselves on not being pushed about. And nobody phoned me. And if they had phoned me, I would have put the phone down. And if I'd said to any of my journalists, look, we've got a bit of an issue here, they would have told me where to get off. So, I mean, it just did not happen. <laughs> so when the BBC, when the Director General puts all this emphasis on partiality, and his chairman did before, is this part of the political game with the Conservative Party to say, well, you think there's a big problem, we accept that we've got to be impartial. But actually, they talked to you, Katie, and they said, just be careful, right, but just continue as you are. No, no, I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think there's a lot of noise. And what the BBC has to do is hear when there's shouting from the government or, or any other political party, to be honest. And that's what I did at great length for many years, is that you, they deserve a hearing. You know, they are in government or they may be in government. And they, you know, they deserve a hearing. And we don't always get things right. And I think that's, you know, just it's, BBC is a huge organisation. Of course, there is, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. But, you know, on the whole, did I ever get pressured to to change what I was doing because by my bosses, absolutely not. I didn't, and I wouldn't do. I would not be able to come into work and do my job thinking, well, I might get lent on today. It just doesn't happen. And how often you will, were you lied to? I remember when I talked to Laura Koonsberg, maybe a couple of years ago, she said there was one member of... She, most people don't lie. They tell you partial truths. They maybe remain silent, but they rarely lie. She told there was one person who lied directly to her. She would never never talk to them again. Were you ever lied to directly by government? Uh, yeah, I think I was a couple of times. Um, and I know I've spoken to Laura about that as well. And I think, I think look, it does happen. As you say, most people really try not to, to lie. And the skill of a journalist is to see through what they are really saying. And did it happen occasionally? Look, tiny amount of times, but yes, it did. And in the end, you know, again, that's about sort of the journalists getting to the the truth and exposing where the lies had. And, you know, if I was ever a spin doctor, um, my first bit of advice to myself would be don't lie to your sources because once you cross that, that red line, there's no coming back and you're not trusted. And are you glad to be out of it? Are you glad to be out of Westminster? Is it, oh, please, it, you know, I've lived about 20 years in about five. I mean, what... Um, I'm, of course, you know, I, no, I'm not glad to be out because I absolutely loved it. And I think it was, it's, it was really, really amazing time. It was a huge privilege. Um, am I glad not to have to answer the phone at 6am to someone shouting at me or 11 o'clock at night? Uh, yeah, you know, I can, I can live without that kind of uh, craziness in my life. But it was a real privilege to do. Nothing lasts forever. And, um, but wow, what a, what a ride it was. Katie Sell, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. If you've been enjoying our free content, please do consider supporting us. It's less than £2 per month. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It is a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>